File 17 of A Treatise of Human Nature by David Hume. Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by George Yeager. Book 1. Part 3. Section 2. Of Probability and of the Idea of Cause and Effect. This is all I think necessary to observe concerning those four relations which are the foundation of science. But as to the other three, which depend not upon the idea, and may be absent or present even while that remains the same, it will be proper to explain them more particularly. These three relations are identity, the situations in time and place, and causation. All kinds of reasoning consist in nothing but a comparison and a discovery of those relations, either constant or inconstant, which two or more objects bear to each other. This comparison we may make either when both the objects are present to the senses, or when neither of them is present, or when only one. When both the objects are present to the senses, along with the relation, we call this perception rather than reasoning. Nor is there in this case any exercise of the thought, or any action properly speaking, but a mere passive admission of the impressions through the organs of sensation. According to this way of thinking, we ought not to receive as reasoning any of the observations we may make concerning identity and the relations of time and place, since in none of them the mind can go beyond what is immediately present to the senses, either to discover the real existence or the relations of objects. It is only causation which produces such a connection as to give us assurance from the existence or action of one object that it was followed or preceded by any other existence or action. Nor can the other two relations be ever made use of in reasoning, except so far as they either affect or are affected by it. There is nothing in any objects to persuade us that they are either always remote or always contiguous, and when from experience and observation we discover that their relation in this particular is invariable, we always conclude there is some secret cause which separates or unites them. The same reasoning extends to identity. We readily suppose an object may continue individually the same, though several times absent from and present to the senses, and ascribe to it an identity, notwithstanding the interruption of the perception, whenever we conclude that if we had kept our eye or hand constantly upon it, it would have conveyed an invariable and uninterrupted perception. But this conclusion beyond the impressions of our senses can be founded only on the connection of cause and effect. Nor can we otherwise have any security that the object is not changed upon us, however much the new object may resemble that which was formerly present to the senses. 
Whenever we discover such a perfect resemblance, we consider whether it be common in that species of objects, whether possibly or probably any cause could operate in producing the change and resemblance, and according as we determine concerning these causes and effects, we form our judgment concerning the identity of the object. Here, then, it appears that of those three relations which depend not upon the mere ideas, the only one that can be traced beyond our senses and informs us of existences and objects which we do not see or feel, is causation. This relation, therefore, we shall endeavour to explain fully before we leave the subject of the understanding. To begin regularly, we must consider the idea of causation, and see from what origin it is derived. It is impossible to reason justly, without understanding perfectly the idea concerning which we reason, and it is impossible perfectly to understand any idea without tracing it up to its origin and examining that primary impression from which it arises. The examination of the impression bestows a clearness on the idea, and the examination of the idea bestows a like clearness on all our reasoning. Let us, therefore, cast our eye on any two objects which we call cause and effect, and turn them on all sides in order to find that impression which produces an idea of such prodigious consequence. At first sight, I perceive that I must not search for it in any of the particular qualities of the objects, since whichever of these qualities I pitch on, I find some object that is not possessed of it, and yet falls under the denomination of cause or effect. And indeed, there is nothing existent, either externally or internally, which is not to be considered either as a cause or an effect though it is plain, there is no one quality which universally belongs to all beings and gives them a title to that denomination. The idea, then, of causation must be derived from some relation among objects, and that relation we must now endeavor to discover. I find in the first place, that whatever objects are considered as causes or effects are contiguous, and that nothing can operate in a time or place which is ever so little removed from those of its existence. Though distant objects may sometimes seem productive of each other, they are commonly found, upon examination, to be linked by a chain of causes which are contiguous among themselves and to the distant objects. And when in any particular instance we cannot discover this connection, we still presume it to exist. We may therefore consider the relation of contiguity as essential to that of causation, at least may suppose it such, according to the general opinion, till we can find a more, see part 4, section 5, proper occasion to clear up this matter by examining what objects are 
or are not susceptible of juxtaposition and conjunction. The second relation I shall observe as essential to causes and effects is not so universally acknowledged, but is liable to some controversy. It is that of priority of time in the cause before the effect. Some pretend that it is not absolutely necessary a cause should precede its effect, but that any object or action, in the very first moment of its existence, may exert its productive quality and give rise to another object or action perfectly cotemporary with itself. But beside that experience in most instances seems to contradict this opinion, we may establish the relation of priority by a kind of inference or reasoning. It is an established maxim, both in natural and moral philosophy, that an object which exists for any time in its full perfection, without producing another, is not its sole cause, but is assisted by some other principle which pushes it from its state of inactivity and makes it exert that energy of which it was secretly possessed. Now, if any cause may be perfectly cotemporary with its effect, it is certain, according to this maxim, that they must all of them be so, since any one of them which retards its operation for a single moment exerts not itself at that very individual time in which it might have operated, and therefore is no proper cause. The consequence of this would be no less than the destruction of that succession of causes which we observe in the world, and indeed the utter annihilation of time. For if one cause were cotemporary with its effect, and this effect with its effect, and so on, it is plain there would be no such thing as succession, and all objects must be coexistent. If this argument appears satisfactory, it is well. If not, I beg the reader to allow me the same liberty which I have used in the preceding case of supposing it such, for he shall find that the affair is of no great importance. Having thus discovered or supposed the two relations of contiguity and succession to be essential to causes and effects, I find I am stopped short, and can proceed no farther in considering any single instance of cause and effect. Motion in one body is regarded upon impulse as the cause of motion in another. When we consider these objects with utmost attention, we find only that the one body approaches the other, and that the motion of it precedes that of the other, but without any sensible interval. It is in vain to rack ourselves with farther thought and reflection upon this subject. We can go no farther in considering this particular instance. Should any one leave this instance and pretend to define a cause by saying it is something productive of another, 
it is evident he would say nothing. For what does he mean by production? Can he give any definition of it that will not be the same with that of causation? If he can, I desire it may be produced. If he cannot, he here runs in a circle and gives a synonymous term instead of a definition. Shall we then rest contented with these two relations of contiguity and succession as affording a complete idea of causation? By no means. An object may be contiguous and prior to another without being considered as its cause. There is a necessary connection to be taken into consideration and that relation is of much greater importance than any of the other two above mentioned. Here again I turn the object on all sides in order to discover the nature of this necessary connection and find the impression or impressions from which its idea may be derived. When I cast my eye on the known qualities of objects, I immediately discover that the relation of cause and effect depends not in the least on them. When I consider their relations, I can find none but those of contiguity and succession, which I have already regarded as imperfect and unsatisfactory. Shall the despair of success make me assert that I am here possessed of an idea which is not preceded by any similar impression? This would be too strong a proof of levity and inconstancy, since the contrary principle has been already so firmly established as to admit of no farther doubt, at least till we have more fully examined the present difficulty. We must therefore proceed like those who, being in search of anything that lies concealed from them, and not finding it in the place they expected, beat about all the neighboring fields, without any certain view or design, in hopes their good fortune will at last guide them to what they search for. It is necessary for us to leave the direct survey of this question concerning the nature of that necessary connection which enters into our idea of cause and effect, and endeavor to find some other questions, the examination of which will perhaps afford a hint that may serve to clear up the present difficulty. Of these questions there occur two which I shall proceed to examine that is. First, for what reason we pronounce it necessary that everything whose existence has a beginning should also have a cause? Secondly, why we conclude that such particular causes must necessarily have such particular effects, and what is the nature of that inference we draw from the one to the other, and of the belief we repose in it. I shall only observe, before I proceed any farther, that though the ideas of cause and effect be derived from the impressions of reflection as well as from those of sensation, yet for brevity's sake I commonly mention 
only the latter as the origin of these ideas though i desire that whatever i say of them may also extend to the former passions are connected with their objects and with one another no less than external bodies are connected together the same relation then of cause and effect which belongs to one must be common to all of them. End of file 17